When we cause harm, what's the best way to fix it? I'm Marin Kogan, and I write for Vox about problems hidden in plain sight. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Anyone who's ever had to apologize for causing harm, in other words, all of us, knows how difficult it can be. I'm not talking about the little mistakes, like stepping on someone's foot or accidentally interrupting them. I'm talking about the times we've caused real pain, the errors in our actions or judgment that really hurt someone. Owning up to what you've done, apologizing, trying to make things right, it can be scary. It makes us vulnerable, and it can bring up the painful realization that we need to change. Harm can be perpetrated on a number of different levels. Sometimes it's interpersonal. Sometimes it's systemic, enacted by an institution, a government, or even a culture. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg has been watching the last few years as Americans grapple with two major social movements, Me Too and Black Lives Matter. And she's noticed something. Here in the US, we're pretty bad at making amends. In her new book, On Repentance and Repair, Rabbi Danya draws on the Jewish tradition to explore how we might do these things better. In particular, she looks to the writings of the medieval philosopher Maimonides and finds a robust framework for how to make amends, what we owe each other when we mess up, and how we can try to make things right. I spoke to Rabbi Danya as we approached Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement the holiest day of the year for the Jewish people. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Rabbi Danya, you say that Americans as a society are uniquely bad at repairing the harm we've caused. What do you mean? So Americans are a number of things. We are uniquely individualistic. So when harm happens, people are often left to nurture their own wounds and to sort of manage their own pain instead of being surrounded by a community that will take care of them. And we're a very hyper-capitalistic society. So we've got this instant gratification thing that tends to privilege easy fixes and instant catharsis over process that may take some time and be unclear and we're not very comfortable with the ambiguity. And we've got this system where, you know, like you pull yourself up by your bootstraps as opposed to acknowledging that there are great systems involved and that economic injustice, racial injustice and all of these systems have a deep history. And when it comes to capitalism, you know, those with power are deeply disincentivized to do the work of repentance, right? Like, what is the incentive for someone who owns a for-profit jail to own the harm they caused and to have a reckoning? And that goes to someone who is making a lot of money exploiting workers. Like, there's not a reckoning. And so it plays out in all sorts of ways when harm comes out across lines of power. Not all harm happens when power is in play, 
But a lot of harm happens when power is in play. Right. And so this sort of move towards exploitation is rife in American culture. And for a lot of reasons, forgiveness is a big watchword in American culture. And we've gotten sort of secular American culture taking a, I would say, watered down, secularized version of Protestantism. I don't think it's the real deal. I don't think this is authentic Christianity, but a warped version of it has moved to this. You just forgive and let go. And why aren't you being more forgiving? And so when someone's harmed, we push on them to do the labor of releasing the harmdoer from any culpability. And we don't ask the harmdoer to do any work. And so nothing's changed. I think something that you're saying is like there are so many incentives to not actually take responsibility in our society when we've done wrong. And you can think of that in terms of like an institution. You know, it's hard for an institution to own up to wrongdoing that has happened on their watch or in their organization. And even in the legal system, right? Like if someone has been accused of a crime they or having done harm, they might have done that harm, but the incentive is to not say anything that might incriminate them further. So we have all of these sort of structures in place to prevent people from attempting to apologize and also make amends. And I think it's in part because once you've done that, once you've acknowledged the wrongdoing, it implies that there's some responsibility there to do something. And we often actually don't want to do that. Is that right? Yeah. So one of the implicit arguments in my book on repentance and repair is that the work of repentance often requires, implies some possible shifts in power. If Amazon acknowledges that they have been exploiting their labor force and underpaying them and forcing them to work in dangerous conditions, then going through a meaningful repentance process will require restructuring how they do business in ways that will impact the bottom line and that will reshape how power moves in that organization. If we want to talk about real repentance work around white supremacy in America, there are necessarily going to be implications for who holds power and what power looks like in this country. And even on the individual level, if an individual person takes responsibility for the harm they caused, there may be implications for their job or for their status. And they don't want to risk that. And so they'd rather not because there are consequences. Accepting the consequences for harm is part of the work. You know, yikes. <laughs> you say that we tend to privilege forgiveness over repentance. What's the problem with privileging forgiveness? I believe that real repentance work is victim-centered. It focuses on the needs of the person, people, community who's harmed and is about taking care of them and is about repairing that hole in the universe. Pushing forgiveness is telling the person who was harmed that you need to basically let go of this horrible thing that was done to you, even though nobody is taking care of you. Even though nobody is attending to your needs, nobody's trying to make anything right, 
nobody is coming to you in a sincere and meaningful way and doing anything. And yet it is on you to fix the harm that was done to you. And to me, from a moral standpoint, that's absolutely outrageous. You write in the book about this concept of cheap grace. I'm wondering if you can explain what cheap grace means. I mean, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a very important mid-century theologian, and he talks about it. And he is a Protestant theologian, and he was critiquing Protestants who try to get to forgiveness without doing the work of repentance. And the idea of grace is it's a Christian concept. And as a rabbi, I don't want to get too deep into explaining, uh, you know, and getting it wrong. But in Christian circles, you know, in Bonhoeffer's critique, the running towards forgiveness, they'll often cite, for example, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about, you know, forgiving 70 times 7 is a sort of line in the New Testament that gets a lot of play. But people will pull out that verse and skip the part where actually in context of where that verse is situated, Jesus is holding a community accountability process. There is actually repentance work happening in that exact context. And so it is very easy to pull out one verse and just dump the labor on the harmed party. And that is an easy way to re-inscribe existing power structures. If we put it on the victim to forgive, then we don't have to ask anything of the pastor who abused her, right? Or whatever. It's cheap. It doesn't, you know, it is not the thing. Yes. It doesn't work to try to skip the steps. Can you give me some examples of where we see this process play out in the real world? Instances where, you know, an apology is expected to be enough and we maybe unfairly pressure victims or people who have been harmed to just get over it or just learn to forgive, do the Christian thing, move on. Oh, God. I mean, you know, my DMs over the last number of years have been <laughs> filled up with people who have come to me as I've been talking about this stuff. You know, my pastor told me that I should forgive my abuser and go back to him. And, you know, you should just go back to your husband and forgive him and let him continue beating you. And, you know, a friend who was in a toxic situation at work and his superior was basically threatening to undermine his work in really significant ways if he didn't X and Y and Z. My friend was asking for some totally reasonable recourse through HR and he just kept getting told to sort of forgive and forget and move on. It happens all the time in real life. We certainly saw it as Me Too broke. All of these famous dudes were named as abusers and 12 minutes passed and people started asking, well, how much time has to pass before we can forgive and move on and give them their $6 million Netflix special. Like we, the public, as though we're in any position to forgive, as opposed to the actual human beings that were directly harmed, only the victims can forgive the harm people. But you would start to see these op-eds. We should forgive Louis C.K. as though we could. It's everywhere. And this is something I think you saw it a lot 
in the school shootings of the 90s, these Mm. small towns where people were predominantly Christian. The question was always, do you forgive the shooter? You see it now with police shootings of unarmed Black civilians, Mm -hmm. this question being asked to family members again and again. Do you forgive? Do you forgive? And it's almost like we put an unfair burden on the people who are victimized to, one, accept the harm, but then also to somehow absolve the person who has done harm. Right. I want to just pause and say, you know, I, I don't want this to be Christian bashing. I want to really name clearly that this is a secularized, twisted version and that there are plenty of places in both original texts and later writings that talk about the work of repentance in Christian thinking and theology. So how it's gotten twisted in American culture, I think, has a lot to do with white supremacy. And in on repentance, I talk a lot about what happened after the Civil War. That we move to forgiveness really quickly as a way of reinscribing white supremacy, lest Black Americans get any rights or sovereignty or agency in this country. I'm curious if there are other cultures or traditions that handle this process of making amends better <laughs> and what we might learn from them. I mean, there are a lot of cultures that have all sorts of different ways of addressing and mending harm. There's processes in Maori culture that I've learned about. There's all sorts of different things happening in various indigenous cultures here on Turtle Island, what's known as North America now. They fundamentally come down to the same general idea, which is like when harm happens, what does the person who was harmed need and how do we take care of them? How do we get the harm doer to deal with the fact that they did a thing and really address it in a robust and meaningful way and make things right with the person that they harmed? Like what language you give it and what the process looks like, it's fundamentally about that. There's uh, Judge Joseph Flies Away, who's a judge in a tribal court in the United States. You know, he says that in his community, when somebody commits harm, they say that he's acting like he has no family, that there's this understanding that if somebody is in community and embedded in community and surrounded by people that care for them, that of course they're not going to be doing harmful things. Right. And that they need some love and care and family connection and that it's all about healing that. What can a rabbinical scholar from the Middle Ages teach us about how to make amends in the 21st century? That's coming up after a quick break. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. 
from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point of sale system. Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. Let's talk a little bit about what Judaism has to say about making amends. Right now, you know, we're coming up on Yom Kippur, the highest holy day in the Jewish faith, the Day of Atonement. Tell me what Judaism has to say about apologizing and making amends. Okay, so Maimonides, who is a 12th century philosopher, Torah scholar, physician, all-around genius, did this thing where he took a lot of the pre-existing rabbinic literature and sort of collected and rearranged in a new way. Has this book called the Mishnah Torah, and there are a lot of things in it. But one of his rearrangings included Hilchot Tshuva. Now, Tshuva, usually translated as repentance, really means return. It's not about like somebody standing over you with an angry finger going, repent. It's about coming back. It's about returning to where you were supposed to be before you strayed. It's about coming back to your integrity your sense of self, your best self, right? Your values to your connection with the divine, if that's language that works for you. But any which way, it's about coming back to who you were supposed to be all along before you went off and did harm, right? It's about acting like you have a family, like you're accountable to people, and like you matter. And so the work of making tshuva, of doing that return work, has, as I read Maimonides, five distinct steps. Number one, Confession. You have to own the harm that you caused fully, completely, no hedging, no talking about your great intentions, no like trying to dress it up to try to make it not sound so bad. Like just own it. Like here is what I did. Dan Harmon, the community showrunner, when he was owning his sexual harassment of Megan Gann said like, you know, and if I had any respect for women, I wouldn't have done that. Like own it. And it's ideally public. Like definitely it's in front of like anybody who witnessed the harm, right? If you said something racist in a staff meeting, then everybody in that staff meeting has to be part of that confession. But ideally it's more public because you're then a making yourself vulnerable and letting people know that you're kind of going on a journey and that there's some work you have to do and that you are accountable now to people and you're letting people in and saying, I'm going to need some help as I'm trying to do this work. And critically, right, because we center victims, this is an end to the gaslighting. This is validating the victim's experience. It can just be so healing to hear the harm doer name clearly what happened and what was going on in their head it can be so profound. And maybe the victim actually felt clear, but other people didn't believe them. And then it's helpful in another way. But like, we need that confession, that owning it. Step two, start to change. Because if you are going to be doing the same thing again and again, then we're not going anywhere. So is it therapy? Is it 
going deep in your prayer meditation practice and seeking out that spiritual direction help? Is it educating yourself on whatever the place of ignorance was that you held and starting to do some learning? I mean, I don't know. What do you need to do? But starting to do the work. And that might be ongoing for a while. And then there's three amends. What does the victim need to feel? Like you're not going to undo the harm, but what will feel like repair? Like you're sewing up that hole in the cosmos that you created. Is it money? Is it money directly to them? Are you donating to an organization that makes sense? Are you donating time? Are you spending the rest of your life working on this issue because you know that what you did was so big that you can never truly undo it? I mean, I don't know. Depends on the thing, right? You don't do amends at the victim. You have to ask them what they need. Yeah. Because treating the victim like an object is continuing to replicate that harm, right? You have to engage with them, right? I have a question for you. Okay. When does the apology come in? Okay. And now, now, <laughs> step four, all the way down at step four, we finally get to apology. People are surprised because we're used to like, I'm sorry is the first thing you say, right? Right. But that's checking off a box because the harm doers doesn't really get what they did. But if you first have to own your stuff in this really humbling, hard, vulnerable kind of way, and then you're doing the work to really change and unearth, like, why did I do this thing? Why did I say this thing? And like, you're really starting to change. And then you're asking the victim, like, what would it take to make you feel better? And like, there's additional insights that come out of that conversation, right? Then by the time you get to apology, it's not checking off a box. It's like, oh, you see the other person and you really get what happened and you get what you did. And so it's an open heart that apology is flowing organically from this place of just wanting to tell them how sorry you are because you really find like you finally get to like you really are sorry and you get it and it feels a little more earned right it's not just like a knee-jerk thing that one says to cover one's butt right it's something that has come from a place of reflection and starting to change and it comes from a place of sorrow yeah. I'm sorry is I actually am feeling sorrow because I have gotten down deep enough in my own place to find my sorrow about what I did to you. And then we get to step five, which is, drumroll please, when you have the chance to do the thing again, and you always will have a chance to do the thing again, you make a different choice. Because there will always be another chance to play out your anger to have your insecurity dumped out as a power play over somebody, right? If you don't do the work of deep reflection and transformation on the individual or systemic level, there will always be a new opportunity. I think we all know those instances where we're just like so sorry and we keep telling someone we're so sorry. I think we've all been on both sides of this. And it's clear that the person doesn't actually want you to keep apologizing that. In fact, maybe the apology can be a burden. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious about what Maimonides says about instances where the harmed person is not ready to offer forgiveness. So this is a good place to note that repentance and forgiveness are separate tracks. There is nowhere in Judaism 
where the sentence, you must forgive me so that I can go get right with God exists. So there's no place in Judaism where coercing a victim to forgive makes any sense, according to the system, which doesn't mean that there aren't Jews who try to do that, but it doesn't work in the system. You can do all of your repentance work, but like everybody's on their own sheet. So literature says you go and you apologize. And this is, we're assuming you're totally sincere, right? You go and you apologize once. And if the person tells you to bug off, you come back with three people. You've got your accountability team now. And they're there, I think, to like check and see if what you're doing is right. They're like checking body language. And if the person tells you to bug off again, you have a chance to like debrief with your people. Like, what's going on? Like, why are they not feeling it? What am I doing wrong? And like, what am I missing here, friends? And then sort of talk it through. And then you go back with a different accountability team and you try again. And if the person still tells you to bug off, then you come back again with another accountability team. If they tell you to bug off, then the Jewish law says you are off the hook and you are free to go like ask God for forgiveness on Yom Kippur. Victim does not need to forgive you. Needless to say, now, if you are the one who is harmed and we are all the harm doer, we are all the harmed party, we are all witnesses to harm, right? Like we're all all of these things in various spaces in our lives. But if you are the harmed party, first of all, if somebody doesn't do any repentance work for you, then according to Judaism, it's like you owe them nothing. And if they come to you and it seems like they're not sincere or doing this in a meaningful way, you don't owe them anything. But if somebody's coming to you sincerely and if the harm was not significant, then the tradition is like somebody's coming, they're open hearted, they seem to be really trying to do the work. In Judaism, forgiveness is not like now we are best friends for the rest of our lives. It's just like, okay, are we done here? kind of forgiveness. And check yourself. Like, are you being petty? Are you lording things over them? Like, what is in you that you're not willing to close those books? But if the harm that they did to you was serious and traumatic, I believe that the tradition says that you never need to forgive them. You never need to forgive your abuser ever, ever, ever. So you might, as an organic part of the healing process, it might just happen, but you don't ever have to forgive your abuser, and that's okay. Yeah, I think what I'm hearing from you here is that much like the process of forgiveness is a personal transformation, it's a personal process, it's something that happens internally based on a whole number of different factors— the process of making amends and doing the work of repentance is also a personal process that needs to take place independent of whether or not you might ever get forgiveness. You need to be willing to do the work regardless of whether or not you're going to get the payoff of someone actually accepting your apology. Right. You know, listen, if when I cause harm, it's not if, it's when. When I cause harm, like, you know, I want the cathartic, nice, warm, fuzzy experience of getting the like, you know, thank you. I really appreciate you. You know, like it's nice, but sometimes we don't get that. And sometimes we have to live with that. And 
accepting the consequences of our actions is part of the repentance process. And knowing that somebody doesn't want to talk to you to the point where they're not even going to respond to your repeated beautifully crafted emails or whatever, knowing that you're never going to hear back is part of the consequence. And you just have to be okay with that and just find a different way to get closure inside. Okay, so you say there's no place in Judaism where God commands us to forgive, but does God command us to repent? Why is the Day of Atonement, which is almost upon us, so important to the Jews? <laughs> it is the day of the day of the days. Should I do a little historical overview? Sure. So back in the day when the temple stood in ancient Jerusalem, there was this notion of what's often translated as ritual purity and ritual impurity, though really an everyday state and an elevated state would be a better translation. And then in order to go to the temple, you needed to do a series of purification rituals. So once a year, the high priest would go and do a series of rituals to clean out the space and kind of reboot it, basically. And also do sort of a purification ritual for himself and his family and for all the people of Israel. Then when the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE, external purification became much more about the spiritual purification and the internal work of cleaning out our spiritual selves. And for Jews, we have a handful of times when this is available to us. We've got Yom Kippur, we've got like the day of your wedding, the day of your death, a few other times where this is like this opportunity to cleanse, clarify ourselves in this really deep inner spiritual way. But the Mishnah, which is an ancient, ancient, ancient oral tradition, Mishnah says that you can't go ask God for forgiveness and atonement on Yom Kippur until you have asked your friend for forgiveness if you have hurt them. So that's where we start to get the work of interpersonal repentance to start to kick in. What do you need to do to make right with somebody if you have harmed them? And so the interpersonal cleanup is definitely a prerequisite to Yom Kippur, but it's also a prerequisite to living life. And one great teacher in the Talmud said, you know, you should repent one day before your death. And the students were like, Master, but how do you know what day is going to be the day before your death? And the guy was like, ha, you don't. So you should repent every day. <laughs> Clean up your business. I have become such a believer in this that this idea that you run around doing harm and then spend two weeks every year frantically trying to write letters to people being like, sorry, I screwed up. Like, that's not a way to live. Catch yourself when you screw up. And if you can't catch yourself in the moment, like, listen to those guilty voices that are there. <laughs> you know you did that. You know you did that. And then you're like, I don't want to talk to you. And just, like, deal with it like a grown-up and clean up your mess. Okay, we're gonna take one last short break, but when we're back, 
I asked Rabbi Danya how we might apply her teachings on repentance to some complex problems. talk to you about some of the real world implications of these teachings Mm -hmm. in the book you touch on a whole number of topics where they might be applicable and we could honestly i think do a show on each one of these topics but i just want to touch on a few of these scenarios we talked about it a little bit let's start with me too this is an issue where these themes come up so often we've read so many apologies from prominent men accused of assault or abuse that feel like they're defensive or they're dismissive or they're just missing the point in general. I also think, though, it's rare. I've seen some examples where it seems like there are men who are trying to do the work. And yet there's this idea that we really don't, as a society, have any path out of the wilderness for the men who do these things. And so I think it inevitably resorts to the situation where we all feel frustrated. The accused feel frustrated. The victims certainly feel frustrated. We as bystanders feel really frustrated, right? Is there another way? And what would it look like in the context that you have applied here? Yes, there is another way. In fact, defensiveness is the problem and the entitlement is the problem because that's another thing that we see so often from these dudes is like, how quickly can I get out of sex abuser jail and get back to my lucrative contract, right? And I don't mean real jail. I mean like Twitter jail. They don't actually go to jail. (gasps) Insert stat here about how few sex abusers actually make it to prison. Insert other stat here about how problematic prison is as a means of dealing with justice. We'll get there. We will get there. (laughs) You know, we see these dudes and they are defensive and they don't want to do the work. And chuva is a process. Repentance work is a process. And so sometimes it does take time. And it makes sense to say, we are not going to tolerate sexual abusers in our community. We are not going to platform them. We are not going to give them multi-million dollar contracts. We are not going to invite them to our conferences or put them on our panels. We are not going to solicit donations from them, et cetera, et cetera. And we are going to assume that these people have their own people who are going to be their accountability team. And if you are close to someone who is credibly accused of harassment, abuse, you should not bounce on them. You should show up and try to help them through their repentance process and agitate them when they're resisting, right? And try to push them towards doing the work. But larger community does not have to sit around and wait while they're resisting. And when they start doing the work, when they start engaging meaningfully, when they start making it right with their victims, when victims say, okay, this person has done the work and they're cool, then we let them back. Then that is the cue. My question for you, though, is that As you point out, the victim isn't obligated to forgive. Correct. So what do we do in those situations where, I guess maybe this is like a bystander's question, but in those situations where it does seem like someone has authentically 
done the work and they have not been forgiven by the victim. And we understand that they have no obligation to do so. Do they stay in Twitter jail? (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to give like a one shot theoretical answer to this. I think it depends on what earned trust looks like. And so like, at what point does somebody get their quote unquote earned credit back? You know, I don't think I can sort of pinpoint like, here's the moment, but when it's happening, you know it. Yeah. It's just all I can say. I want to talk to you a little bit about the criminal legal system, our primary way of addressing harms sent to people in our society. And yet, you know, as you point out in the book, and so many others have, this is a very punitive system. There's almost no chance for people who have done harm to apologize and make amends. As we know, the system is often unfair and racist, and in many cases, operates entirely separately from the wishes of the victims, and sometimes even operates against the wishes of the victims. So I'm wondering what a system that takes the teachings of Maimonides into account might look like. So, you know, as I was doing the work on this book and seeing not only places in various indigenous cultures that echoed what Maimonides was doing, but going deeper in my my learnings about restorative justice, so much of what happens in these spaces echoes Maimonides, the sense of creating space, victim-centered. My friend and I would say teacher, Dr. Shira Berkowitz, who runs Sacred Spaces, which is a, an organization that helps prevent abuse in the Jewish community, prevent sexual abuse primarily. She talks about how important it is that RJ is victim-initiated, not just victim-centered, because it's so easy to foist restorative justice on somebody and be like, here, this is going to be your process. And that also can be really harmful. But that when things are victim-initiated and victim-centered and really sort of holding the person who was harmed, centering their needs, there's so much education and helping the harm doer do the work of transformation and help them understand what they did and help them learn and grow and change and become someone different and come face to face with the victim and understand really what they did. Restorative justice is a powerful tool, particularly transformative justice, which looks not only to heal the particular situation, but to transform the larger situation so that if someone caused harm because they were in a situation of, say, poverty, We need to heal the larger context in order to be serious about harm prevention. And so a lot of the larger thinking about addressing root causes of harm in our society, I find so critical. And I don't think there's one magic bullet that's going to do everything, but I think there's a lot of brave thinking out there already. And we need to start being brave enough to start (laughs) allocating dollars in that direction and see what happens. Yeah, I was so struck reading your book about the connections between some of these Jewish teachings that you outlined and the Native and Indigenous teachings that sort of form the backbone of restorative justice. And I think it's so appealing in part because, like I said, our system right now operates entirely 
not entirely, but almost entirely outside of this framework or this approach. And yet, you know, as you point out, there are these limits there. Like, it's hard to institutionalize what are essentially internal processes of making amends. The person making amends has to really want to do it. The person forgiving has to really decide that it makes sense for them to forgive. You also write about the ways in which we as Americans have attempted to downplay or deny the legacy of slavery in this country and the ways in which that upholds white supremacy. And just reading it, I was thinking a lot about the ways in which Republican legislatures across the country are banning books. And one of the rationales we've heard for this is this idea that we really don't want to make white children feel bad, right? We want to protect them from feeling bad and feeling like it's their fault. I know you have some thoughts about that approach. I I want to ask you about the danger in trying to deny these things in an attempt to avoid making us feel bad. I mean... When you don't do the work, you continue to commit the same harms again and again and again and again. We've been committing and recommitting the sins of white supremacy since 1619. They have taken different forms, but we are continuing to do so aggressively. I think of the 1619 project as an invitation to the confession step. Like the confession step feels like everything in terms of national repentance. Like you cannot go anywhere until you start telling the truth. Let's start getting out there and start naming for real what happened. Like, let's talk about this. Let's even just start to name and be honest. Can we have an honest conversation? And the answer to that invitation was shut up. No, we will not have an honest conversation. We will continue denying reality so that we can maintain these power structures. And because repentance is so often a revolutionary process, it really is. It's countercultural. It unroots empires. And those with power in many states decided, no, thank you. We'll keep doing harm. Thank you very much. Let's bring this even closer to home. I want to talk about repentance and repair on a more personal level. As you've noted earlier in this conversation, we have all caused harm. We have all been harmed. And you've made it really clear that the victim does not owe anyone her forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So I just want to know where that leaves us on a personal level. How do we think about this in the context of the harm that we might cause others? What can we do when we've hurt someone? And what do we do when we don't get that forgiveness? It's hard. Listen, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. I am now very practiced at noticing the guilty feeling inside is demanding attention. And oh gosh, I have to actually deal with this. But here's the thing is that I've now taken on repentance work as something of a spiritual practice. And I do it imperfectly and inelegantly, and everybody I've heard has lots to say about what I can and should be doing better. And the more you do it, it's like any muscle, the easier it gets. Like it's not insurmountable. These days, you know, I write a bad tweet, I delete a bad tweet, I explain why I wrote the bad tweet, you know, and I own it. And and people are like, wow, Danya, that's so brave. I'm like, no, it's not. I do this all the time. Because you know what, I write a lot of bad tweets. Like, That's nothing. And that is nothing compared to the much more complex interpersonal stuff I'm trying to clean up currently. Like, I've got real work to do. 
but it does get easier the more you do it. And it's hard and it's scary and you can do it. And you just take the one step and the next step and the step after that. You show up and you try to do it with your open heart. And if the other person doesn't forgive you, like, let that be okay. Your job is to do tshuva, to come home, to return. Return back to your integrity, your values, your best self. And you can do that. That is all you can ever do. As you point out, you know, seeking to sincerely apologize and make amends is so hard and so scary. It feels really destabilizing to have to sometimes acknowledge the harm that you've caused. But it is also, as you say, a transformative process, and it can be really transformative. So I want you to speak a little bit about it. Why is it worth taking the risk? Because it's an act of love. It's an act of love for the person that you hurt, because there's somebody hurt who is in need of care and may be so much more healed if you reach out and do this work. And it's an act of love for yourself because some part of you is not in alignment. There's some growing and some reconnecting that you need to do. And this is in its own way, an act of self-care. It's a way of saying self, you're, you're out of whack. How do we get you back to where you need to be? And I will tell you, after it's done being scary, like that first step is a little scary. And then it feels so good. It feels so, so good. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so, so much. Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdepska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And A.M. Hall is our deputy editorial director. Your feedback really helps. So if you have ideas for future guests or topics or any thoughts at all, send them to voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends, rate and review. That stuff really helps. And join us next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.